Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. Oh, and Sarah, before we start the podcast, I just thought we should probably talk about tonight's plans. Yeah. Uh, tonight, I dine with Count A and tomorrow with Duke B. And if I don't have to dance, I make a trip with Marquis C. I avoid serious liaisons. I satisfy all my caprices. Hmm. Katie, that doesn't really sound that much like you. It sounds a lot like Mata Hari, though. Are you sure you're not confusing your lives? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. She's her subject for today. Mata Hari was an exotic dancer, and we do mean exotic, and a courtesan, but we know her best for her reputation as a glamorous, beautiful spy, ensnaring high-powered military men with her charms and her uh, talents. So who was this sinister Salome, as the newspapers called her, and what exactly was she guilty of? Well, unsurprisingly, her birth name was not Matahari. I'm so surprised. <laughs> it was Margreta Gertruda Zell, and she entered the world in the Netherlands on August 7th, 1876. And she was the spoiled little princess daughter of a hatter, incredibly spoiled. I don't know what you're talking about, Sarah, because I, too, had my own phaeton drawn by goats when I was a child, so perhaps yours is just a little deprived. Well, maybe you both just had princess-like childhoods, but she was abandoned in her teens when her father goes bankrupt and her mother dies. And from that point on, she has an affair with a headmaster. It's her baby's first scandal. Yeah, her first entry into this scandalous world. She was looking for a way out of the Netherlands, and she found it. In a guy who she met through his personal ad, Captain Rudolf MacLeod of the Dutch Colonial Army. They were engaged in six days and married in 1895. The bride wore yellow. And according to one article I read, he was extravagantly mustachioed. He was also older, a drinker, a gambler, and a jealous man. So in short, a darnly. And he beat her and threatened her with guns and swords, and he verbally abused her, describing her as the scum of the lowest kind. And he also had syphilis, which he called diabetes. Glossing the same thing. Glossing over that. She wasn't a great wife, though. She said that she had inclinations that made it impossible for a woman like me to be a good housewife. And it's also probable that she was sleeping around with other military men that he knew. Married life was definitely not for her. But it wasn't for him, either. He kept up his womanizing. He just expected her to stay home and not do the same. She had two children with McLeod, a boy and a girl, and tragically, both children became very, very ill, and her son died at age two. And it's possible that she had contracted syphilis from her husband and passed it on to her children. Maybe they sickened due to a doctor's attempt to cure the infection with mercury. But other rumors were that they were poisoned by a nanny or a servant, and her husband thought she might have done it and admitted that he wanted to kill her. So their marriage deteriorates, and as it becomes more violent and more unhappy, they return to the Netherlands and they separate, and he leaves her penniless, and she gives him custody of their daughter. And what's she going to do? She doesn't have any money. She doesn't have a job. So she goes to Paris and finds a way to survive, acting as a nude artist model, being a circus rider, and acting as a prostitute. 
But then she began dancing, first in private homes and then in public. And Lady McLeod, the name she went by then, was 5'10 and gorgeous, with olive skin, dark hair, and eyes. She looked a bit exotic, and so she concocted a style of dance to match it, which was vaguely reminiscent of Javanese dance from her life there with the captain, and definitely sexy. She called these dances sacred dances, and they tied together religion, art, and nudity. You wish, Lady Gaga. And there were lots of religious statues and veils, mainly veils dropping to the floor as she became more and more nude and writhed around in front of figurines of someone's god. Classy, classy. Yeah. And in the early 1900s, she emerges as Matahari, which means the eye of the day, in this beaded metal brazier with a tiger-like, or sometimes people describe it as serpent-like, uh, moves that she'd show off with. Yes, this belly dancer would like to see these moves. And reading accounts from the papers at the time is hilarious because they're just falling all over themselves to try to find words to describe just how sexy she is without actually saying that. So Still over being and over, able to print it. Oh yes. <laughs> She's tiger-like and, you know, talking about her serpentine moves and how she does a simple dance where she becomes more and more simple, meaning she drops more and more veils <laughs> until there's not a whole lot left. Well, her dance may be simple, but her life definitely isn't. Her backstory isn't. It's this elaborate, made-up story. She talks about how her mother was an Indian princess and how she sneaked into Hindu temples to learn the dances of worshippers. Just this off-the-wall stuff. And so she's this, you know, beautiful, lying, naked woman and was a smash hit in Paris. More exciting than the Moulin Rouge. Colette went to see her dance, a detail I liked. And her newfound fame brought her many new lovers. She did love her military men. She said once, I have never loved any but officers. So our things that Matahari loves include making up stories, dancing, being naked, and having sex with military men. But we cannot leave one thing off the list. That's spending money. She's very extravagant, and it's how she eventually ends up at the Folie Bergère, which is a downgrade compared to where she was performing before. So how did she end up shot by a firing squad on espionage charges? Was she betting these military officers for nefarious purposes? That she didn't see that one coming. <laughs> That's our big shocker. And the answer to that depends on who you ask. The curator of the Matahari exhibit at the Fries Museum, Everett Kramer, says that she's definitely guilty, that she definitely offered to spy for the Germans, and she offered to spy several times for the French. But the historian Leon Sherman and biographer Pat Shipman maintain that her trial and execution was more about scapegoating, that she might have been a double agent, but she was an incredibly inept one. She just wanted money that she was offered. She didn't actually really pay attention to the idea of the assignment. So now that we've mentioned two possible judgments, we're going to give you the story. She was in Germany dancing at the Metropole when World War I broke out, and she was Dutch, uh, the Netherlands were neutral, but she'd spent so much time in France that the Germans considered her a French citizen. They took 
everything she owned except for the clothes she was wearing and sent her out of town on a train. Presumably a scanty <laughs> outfit, I would imagine. Perhaps a, an elegant suit. So she makes her way to Amsterdam and an old lover, and it's there that she possibly began her downfall. She wanted restitution for the things that had been taken from her, and the German consulate wouldn't give it to her. But they did offer her another deal, and that was money in exchange for spy work. So she takes the money, but did she take the job? This is the big question about Mata Harry. Did she do the work? She did get assigned a code name, H21, which is not nearly as good as Mata Hari. But everything else during this period is very muddled. Some accounts have her betraying both the Germans and the French, working for both and screwing them both over. One account says that she admitted to giving the Germans information, but just outdated information, so not so bad. Please don't execute me. And another one says that she came into contact with French intelligence while she was trying to make her way to a lover in Vittel. And they later sent her to Belgium on a mission, but she couldn't get there. Instead, she got together with a German captain who told her German secrets. According to her account, according to French intelligence, she was passing French secrets on to the Germans. Of course, you could look at it either way because none of us were there. And another says that French intelligence actually came to her, asking her to spy to prove that she wasn't spying for Germany. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but basically, if you'll do this work for us, we'll we'll know that you're okay. And she takes money for clothes and maybe, again, didn't perform her duties. So we have no idea what actually happened during this period, or we have little bits and pieces, but they don't ever come together to form a cohesive picture of what happened. Trust me, I've read account after account after account. But she definitely had contact with German and French officers and with French and German intelligence. It's simply uncertain what the extent of that contact was. Was it just sex and money or secrets or some delicious combination of the three? But whether she did it or not, it's certainly true that her reputation as a spendthrift, sexually promiscuous woman colored people's perceptions of her and worked against her during her trial. Yeah, the British were very against Matahari. For example, they stopped her on one of her trips and searched her. And despite not finding anything, they still declared her a person of suspicion. She was attractive and multilingual. She's this beautiful woman traveling alone. And they described her as bold, which is probably a code word for her sex life. I mean, you can just imagine her in a movie, somebody who just seems suspicious. Well, and in, you can see her in that, that glamorous depiction in the movies, but in real life, she sounds pretty terrible. I know. We were talking about this before the podcast, how she sounds like she would be an absolute pain if you were actually there talking to her. But she's so fascinating. She was arrested February 13th, 1917, and she's said to have handed out chocolates to her arresters. And she was tried in a military court, which some called a kangaroo court, July 24th and 25th. And the French chief inquisitor said of her, just to give you an idea of what kind of trial this was, feline, supple, and artificial, used to gambling everything and anything without scruple, without pity, always ready to devour fortunes, leaving her ruined lovers to blow their brains out. She was a born spy. And while I don't see how any of those qualities add together to form a spy, I perhaps just lack the 
Inquisitor's imagination. I think that would be the dialogue to open up the movie, too, (laughs) maybe as she's riding on the train. But she is convicted, and she's sentenced to die by firing squad. And October 15th, 1917, she goes to face her death. She wears this nice gray suit and a hat and refused to be tied to the stake. And she also refused a blindfold, saying that won't be necessary. So she has a good death, considering. And again, we come to our question, was she a spy? It's been proposed that the French simply needed a scapegoat. The war was going badly. So many men are dying. Morale was very low. And here we have, uh, you know, little Miss Sexy Sex and her piles of money, which just didn't seem right to them. The papers were saying that she bathed in milk when French children didn't even have milk to drink. So you can see why she would be easy to hate. Well, and that the money is being exchanged to buy things like clothes. That just makes it so much worse. Instead of contributing to the war effort, right? And it's also been suggested that some of the documents used in her trial were altered by the French. And, surprise twist that the French head of intelligence may have been a German spy himself and was trying to deflect attention and distracting them with Matahari. So is Matahari a victim or was she really a criminal? Was she this cunning double crosser and a femme fatale? Or was she somebody who it was convenient to blame, a woman who was easy to fear and easy to hate? I'm more of the second opinion To be honest, it doesn't really sound like she would be capable of the former. She sounds a little (laughs) dim, yeah, to be executing really high-level double-crossing, double-agent stuff. Someone who cared much more about sex and money than she did about any sort of political ambitions. But we are uncertain, and we probably will be, until the French declassify documents related to her case in 2017. So... We'll catch up with you in 2017. Well, so in the meantime, we'll talk listener mail. Our first email is from Caroline, and she wrote, I guess as a Canadian, I wasn't really the right audience for the bombardment of Baltimore episode, as I was rooting for the other guys. I'm a proud Haligonian living across the street from our beautiful Citadel Fort, which, by the way, would have been more than prepared for an American attack, not the cakewalk Jefferson imagined. Also, General Robert Ross is buried about two blocks from my apartment in the city's oldest and prettiest cemetery. While he was killed in the States and was Scottish and not from here, the tall tale I've always heard was that Ross's body was shipped this far in a barrel of whiskey and intended to be put on a ship across the ocean, but there were delays. So they didn't bother and just drank the whiskey and buried him here. Bury the body, save the whiskey. So good sentiment to have, I guess. Our second email is from Erin in Texas, and she wrote regarding the Bombardment of Baltimore podcast. And in that podcast, we talked a little bit about the Star Spangled Banner and how little pieces of it had been snipped up and given off to people. Cursed the family. As gifts. And the flag ends up cursing the family. Exactly. And she wrote that she had a similarly historic flag in her own family. And a few years ago, her parents were visiting her grandmother when her dad found what she calls a little piece of history tucked away in a family photo album. And he finds two small squares of fabric, one red, one white, and the following letter addressed to his grandmother's grandmother. And it's from December 21st, 1865. 
Madam, I have presumed sufficiently upon my acquaintance with Mr. Andrews to send you by him a souvenir of the past, a piece of General R. E. Lee's battle flag. After the surrender had been determined upon, the officers of the general's staff determined that the glorious old flag, which had floated in triumph over so many bloody fields, should never be desecrated by Yankee hands. And the letter goes on like this, but once her dad realized the importance of what he had found, he and this writer's grandmother decided to send the pieces off to the Appomattox Courthouse National Historic Park so that it could be properly preserved and so that they could avoid a family flag feud of their own. We loved both of these emails. If you'd like to email us, we're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, but we try to make it easy for you to keep in touch with us. So we're also on Twitter at Mist in History, and we have a Facebook fan page, which we keep updated pretty much every day. So come check us out there or look for some more history articles to read on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 